brought to you by Charity Mobile, the phone company that shares your values. More information is available at CharityMobile.com. The state of the church in our time is, to put it mildly, rather a mess. We know this. If you watch what I do every day, you know this. This is nothing new, really. But the state of the church throughout history has sort of been a one of crisis followed by resolution and interregnum between crises, essentially. Now, nothing quite like what we've seen in our time, uh, except maybe going back to the period of Arius and the Manichaeans and other similar groups in the early centuries of the church. But it does bear repeating that church history is full of these kinds of periods, and there's always a glorious restoration. And one way that the faithful have done to sort of combat the errors of the time is to learn the truths of the faith, the immutable nature of God, what the Eucharist means, all of these things. So today, to that end, I have something for you on that that will should help you understand, well, at least one small part of our faith that is enormous in its implication. That having been said, to understand the claim that our present state of the church is very reminiscent of the 4th and 5th centuries and what the mess of the church was in at that time and how the church dealt with it, I thought it might be good to take a look at one of the more well-regarded treatises on that period of church history. And I'm not going to do the whole thing, obviously. The book's enormous. But um, this is Cardinal Newman's um, understanding of the Trinity. He presents it in two chapters. I'll do one chapter today and another chapter in the future. And here he begins with the doctrine of the Trinity as understood in sacred scripture. The the whole mess surrounding Arius is all about the understanding of the Godhead, ultimately at its core. So, if you'll sometimes you'll see a lot of Arius's ideas prop up again among Protestants today. It's really quite astonishing how most of the ancient heresies have come back the further we get from the Reformation. But anyway, Cardinal Newman, the Scripture doctrine of the Trinity. I begin by laying out the matter of evidence for the Catholic doctrine as it is found in Scripture, that is, assuming it to be there contained. Let us trace out the form in which it has been communicated to us, the disposition of the phenomena which imply it on the face of revelation. And here be it observed, in reference to what has already been admitted concerning the obscurity of the inspired documents, that it is nothing to the purpose whether or not we should have been able to draw the following view of the doctrine from them had it never been suggested to us in the creeds. For it has been providentially so suggested to all of us, and the question is not, what should we have done had we never had external assist assistance, but taking things as we find them, whether the clue of the meaning of Scripture being given, as it has ever been given, we may not deduce the doctrine thence, by as argumentative a process as that which enables us to verify the received theory of gravitation which perhaps we could never have discovered by for ourselves, though possessed of the data from the inventor who drew his conclusions. Indeed, such a state of the case is analogous to that in which the evidence for natural religion is presented to us. It is very doubtful whether the phenomena of the visible world would in themselves have brought us to a knowledge of the Creator, but the universal tradition of his existence has been the beginning from his own comment upon them, graciously preceding the study of evidence. With this remark, I address myself to an arduous undertaking. First, let it be assumed as agreeable both to reason and revelation that there are attributes and operations, 
or by whatever more suitable term we designate them, peculiar to the deity, for instance, creative and preserving power, absolute prescience, moral sovereignty, and the like, these are ever included in our notion of the incommunicable nature of God, and by a figure of speech, were there occasion for using it, might be called one with God, present, actively cooperating and exerting their own distinguishing influence in all his laws, providences, and acts. Thus, if he be eternal or omnipresent, we consider his knowledge, goodness, and holiness to be co-eternal and co-extensive with him. Moreover, it would be an absurdity to form a comparison between these and God himself, to regard them as numerically distinct from him, to investigate the particular mode of their existence in the divine mind, or to treat them as parts of God, inasmuch as they are all included in the idea of the one indivisible Godhead. And lastly, subtle and unmeaning questions might be raised about some of these, for instance, God's power, whether, that is, it did or did not exist from eternity on the ground that, bearing a relation to things created, it could not be said to have existence before the era of creation. Next, it is to be remarked that the scriptures of our so-called elder brothers in the faith introduced to our notion certain peculiar attributes or manifestations, as they would seem, of the deity, corresponding in some measure to those already mentioned as conveyed to us by natural religion, though of a more obscure character. Such is what is called the Spirit of God, a phrase that denotes something, sometimes the divine energy, sometimes creative or preserving power, sometimes the assemblage of divine gifts, moral and intellectual, vouchsafed to mankind, having in all cases a general connection with the notion of the vivifying principle of nature. Such again is the wisdom of God, as introduced in the book of Proverbs, and such is the name, the word, the glory of God. Further, these peculiar manifestations, to give them a name, are sometimes in the same elder scriptures singularly invested with the properties of personality, and although the expressions of the sacred text may in some places be interpreted figuratively, yet there are passages so strangely worded as at first sight to be inconsistent with themselves, and such as would be ascribed in an uninspired work to forgetfulness or inaccuracy in the writer. As, for instance, when what is first called the glory of God is subsequently spoken of as an intelligent agent, often with the characteristics or even the name of an angel. On the other hand, it elsewhere occurs that what is introduced as an angel is afterwards described as God himself. Now, when we pass on to the New Testament, we find these peculiar manifestations of the divine essence concentrated and fixed into, called the Word and the Spirit. At the same time, apparent personality ascribed to them in the Old Testament is changed for a real personality, so clearly and explicitly marked as to resist all critical experiments upon the language, all attempts at allegorical interpretation. Here, too, the word is also called the Son of God, and appears to possess such strict personal attributes as to be able voluntarily to descend from heaven, and assume our nature without ceasing to be identically what he was before, so as to speak of himself, through a man, as one and the same with the divine word who existed in the beginning. The personality of the spirit in some true and sufficient sense is as accurately revealed, and that the son is not the spirit, is also evident from the fixed relations which are described as separating them from each other in the divine essence. Reviewing the process of revelation, Gregory Nazianzen, somewhat after the manner of the foregoing account, remarks that, as Almighty God has in the course of his dispensations revealed the ritual of religion by successive abrogations, so he has changed its theology to, continually, to continual additions till it has come to perfection. Under the old dispensation, he proceeds, the Father was openly revealed, and the, and the Son but obscurely. 
When the new was given, the Son was manifested, but the divinity of the Spirit intimated only. Now the Spirit dwells with us, affording us clearer evidence about himself, that by gradual additions and flights, as David says, and by advancing and progressing from glory to glory, the radiance of the Trinity might shine out on those who are illuminated. Now, from this peculiar method in which the doctrine is unfolded to us in Scripture, we learn so much as this in our contemplation of it, vis-a-vis -vis the absurdity, as well as the presumption, of inquiring minutely about the actual relations subsisting between God and his Son and Spirit, and drawing large inferences from what is told us of them, whether they are equal to him or unequal, whether posterior to him in existence or coeval, such inquiries, though often they must be answered when once started, are in their origin as superfluous as similar questions concerning the Almighty's relation to his own attributes, which still we answer as far as we can when asked. For the Son and the Spirit are one with him, the ideas of number and comparison being excluded. Yet this statement must be qualified from the evidence of Scripture by two additional remarks. On the one hand, the Son and Spirit are represented to us in the economy of revelation, as ministering to God, and as so far personally subordinate to him. And on the other hand, in spite of his personal inequality, yet as being partakers of the fullness of the Father, they are equal to him in nature, and in their claims upon our faith and obedience, as is sufficiently proved by the form of baptism. The mysteriousness of the doctrine evidently lies in our inability to conceive a sense of the word person, such as to be more than a mere character, yet less than an individual intelligent being, our own notions as gathered from our experience of human agents, leading us to consider personality as equivalent, in its very idea, to the unity and independence of the immaterial substance of which it is predicated. The Ecclesiastical Doctrine of the Trinity this being the general scripture view of the Holy Trinity, it follows to describe the ecclesiastical doctrine, chiefly in relation to our Lord, as contained in the writings of the Fathers, especially the Anti-Nicene. Scripture is expressed in declaring both the divinity of him who in due time became man for us, and also his personal distinction from God in his pre-existent state. This is sufficiently clear from the opening of St. John's Gospel, which states the mystery as distinctly as an ecclesiastical comment can propound it. On these two truths the whole doctrine turns, vis-a-vis -vis that our Lord is one with, yet personally separate from God. Now there are two appellations given to him in Scripture, enforcing respectively these two essentials of the true doctrine, appellations imperfect and open to misconception by themselves, but qualifying and completing each other. The title of the Son marks his derivation and distinction from the Father. That of the Word, i.e. reason, denotes his inseparable inheritance in the divine unity. And while the former, taken by itself, might lead the mind to conceive of him as a second being, and the latter as no real being at all, both together witness to the mystery, that he is at once from, and yet in, the immaterial, incomprehensible God. Whether or not these titles contain the proof of this statement, which it is presumed they actually do, at least they will enable us to classify our ideas, and we have authority for so using them. The Son, says Athanasius, is the word and wisdom of the Father, from which titles we infer his impassive and indivisible derivation from the Father, inasmuch as the word or reason of a man is no mere part of him, nor when exercised goes forth from him by a passion. Much less, therefore, is it so with the word of God. On the other hand, the Father calls him his Son, 
lest from hearing only that he was the Word we should consider him such as the Word of man, impersonal, whereas the title of Son designates him as a Word which exists, and a substantial wisdom. Availing ourselves of this division, let us first dwell on the appellation of Son, and then on that of Word or Reason. Nothing can be plainer to the attentive student of Scripture than that our Lord is there called the Son of God, not only in respect of his human nature, but of his pre-existent state also. And if this be so, the very fact of the revelation of him as such implies that we are to gather something from it, and attach in consequence of it some ideas to our notion of him, which otherwise we should not have attached, else would it not have been made taking then the word in its most vague sense, so as to admit as little risk as possible of forcing the analogy, we seem to gain the notion of derivation from God, and therefore of the other dissimilarity and distance existing between him and all beings, except God as Father, as if he partook of that unapproachable, inexpressible divine nature, which is increate and imperishable. But scripture does not leave us here. In order to fix us in this view, lest we should be perplexed with another notion of the analogy, derived from that adopted sonship, which is ascribed therein to created beings, it attaches a characteristic epithet to his name, as descriptive of the peculiar relation of him who bears it to the Father. It designates him as the only begotten, or the own, Son of God, terms evidently referring, where they occur, to his heavenly nature, and thus becoming the inspired comment on the more general title. It is true that the term generation is also applied to certain events in our Lord's mediatorial history, to his resurrection from the dead, and according to the fathers, to his original mission in the beginning of all things to create the world, and to lead his manifestation in the flesh. Still granting this, the sense of the word only begotten remains, defined by his context to relate to something higher than any event occurring in time, however great or beneficial to the human race. Being taken, then, as it needs must be taken, to designate his original nature, it witnesses most forcibly and impressively to that which is peculiar in it, vis-a-vis -vis his origination from God, such as to exclude all resemblance to any being but him, whom nothing created resembles. Thus, without irreverently and idly speculating upon the generation in itself, but considering the doctrine as given us a practical direction for our worship and obedience, we may accept it in token, that whatever the Father is, such is the Son. And there are some remarkable texts in Scripture corroborative of this view. For instance, that in the fifth chapter of St. John, As the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. What things soever the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. As the Father raiseth up the dead, and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father, which hath sent him. This is the principle of interpretation, acknowledged by the primitive church. Its teachers warn us against resting in the word generation. They urge us on to seize and use its practical meaning. Speculate not upon the divine generation. Genesis, says Gregory Nazianzen, for it is not safe. Let the doctrine be honored silently. It is a great thing for thee to know the fact, the mode we cannot admit that even angels understand, much less thou. Basil says, Seek not what is undiscoverable, for you will not discover. If you will not comply, but are obstinate, I shall deride you, or rather, I weep at your daring. 
Believe what is written, seek not what is not written. Athanasius and Chrysostom repel the profane inquiry argumentatively. Such speculators, the former says, might as well investigate where God is, and how God is, and of what nature the Father is. But as such questions are irreligious and argue ignorance of God, so is it also unlawful to venture such thoughts about the generation of the Son of God. And Chrysostom, I know that he begat the Son, the manner of how I am ignorant of. I know what the Holy Spirit is from him. How from him I do not understand. I eat food, but how this converted into my flesh and blood I know not. We know not these things, which we see every day when we eat, yet we meddle with inquiries concerning the substance of God. While they thus prohibited speculation, they boldly used the doctrine for the purposes for which it was given them in Scripture. Thus Justin Martyr speaks of Christ as the Son, who alone is literally called by that name. And arguing with the heathen, he says, Jesus might well deserve from his wisdom to be called the Son of God, though he were only a man like others. For all writers speak of God as the Father of both men and gods. But let it not be strange to you if, besides this common generation, we consider him, as the word of God, to have been begotten of God in a special way. Eusebius of Caesarea, unsatisfactorily as he is in authority, has nevertheless well expressed the general Catholic view in his attack upon Marcellus. He who describes the Son as a creature made out of nothing, he says, does not observe that he is bestowing on him only the name of Son, and denying him to be really such. For he who has come out of nothing cannot truly be the Son of God, more than other things which are made. But he who is truly the Son, born from God, as from a Father, he may reasonably be called the singularly beloved and only begotten of the Father, and therefore he is himself God. This last reference, that what is born of God, is God of course implicitly appeals to, and is supported by the numerous texts which expressly call the Son God and ascribe to him the divine attributes. The reverential spirit to which the fathers held the doctrine of Genesis led them to the use of other forms of expression, partly taken from Scripture, partly not, with a view of signifying the fact of the Son's full participation in the divinity of him who is his Father, without dwelling on the mode of participation or origination, of which they dared not speculate. Such were the images of the sun and its radiance, the fountain and the stream, the root and its shoots, a body and its exaltation, fire and the fire kindled from it, all of which were used as emblems of the sacred mystery in those points in which it was declared in Scripture, vis-à-vis -vis the mystery of the sun's being from the Father, and as such partaker in his divine perfections. The first of these is found in the first chapter of the Epistle to the Hebrews, where our Lord is called the brightness of God's glory. These illustrations had a further use in their very variety, as reminding the Christian that he must not dwell on any one of them for its own sake. The following passage from Tertullian will show how they were applied in the inculcation of the sacred doctrine. Even when a ray is shot forth from the sun, though it be but a part of the whole, yet the sun is in the ray, inasmuch as it is the ray of the sun, nor is its substance separated, but drawn out. In like manner, there is a spirit from spirit, and God from God. And when a light is kindled from another, the original light remains entire and undiminished, though you borrow from it many like itself. So that which proceeds from God is called at once God, and the Son of God are both one. So much is evidently deducible from what Scripture tells us concerning the generation of the Son, that there is, so to express it, a reiteration of the one infinite nature of God, a communicated divinity, in the person of our Lord, an inference supported by the force of the word only begotten, and verified by the freedom and fullness with which the apostles ascribe to Christ the high and expressible titles of eternal perfection and glory.
there is one other notion conveyed to us in the doctrine, which must be evident as soon as it is stated, little as may be the practical usefulness of dwelling upon it. The very name of Son, and the very idea of derivation, imply a certain subordination of the Son to the Father, so far forth as we view him as distinct from the Father, or in his personality, and frequent testimony is borne to the correctness of this inference in Scripture, as in the descriptions of the divine angel in the Old Testament, revived in the closing revelation of the new, of the new and in such passages as that above cited from St. John's Gospel. This is a truth which every Christian feels, admits, and acts upon, but from piety he would not allow himself to reflect on what he does, did not the attack of heresies oblige him. The direct answer which a true religious loyalty leads him to make to any question about the subordination of the Son is that such comparisons are irreverent, that the Son is one with the Father, and that unless he honors the Son in all the fullness of honor which he ascribes to the Father, he is disobeying his express command. It may serve as a very faint illustration of the offense against him, to consider the manner in which he would receive any question concerning the love which he feels respectively for the two intimate friends, or for a brother and a sister, or for his parents, though in such cases the impropriety of the inquiry arises from the incommensurableness, not the coincidence, of the respective feelings, but false doctrine forces us to analyze our own notions in order to exclude it. Arius argued that since our Lord was a son, therefore he was not God, and from that time we have been obliged to determine how much we grant and what we deny, lest while praying without watching we lose all. Accordingly, orthodox theology has since his time worn a different aspect. First, inasmuch as divines have measured what they said themselves. Secondly, inasmuch as they have measured the anti-Nicene language, which by its authors was spoken from the heart, by the necessities of controversies of a later date. And thus those early teachers have been made to appear technical, when in fact they have only been reduced to system, just as in literature, which is composed freely, is afterwards subjected to the rules of grammarians and critics. This must be taken as an apology for whatever there is that sounds harsh in the observations which I now have to make, and for the injustice which I may seem incidentally to do, in the course of them, to the ancient writers whose words are in question. The Catholic theologians, says Bishop Bull, both before and after the Nicene Council, are unanimous in declaring that the Father is greater than the Son, even as to divinity, paternity, and not in nature or in any essential perfection, which is in the Father and not in the Son, but alone in what may be called authority. That is in point of origin, since the Son is from the Father and not the Father from the Son. Justin, for instance, speaks of the Son as having the second place after the unchangeable and everlasting God and Father of all. Origen says that the Son is not more powerful than the Father, but subordinate. According to his own words, The Father that sent me is greater than I. This text is cited in proof of the same doctrine by the Nicene and post-Nicene fathers. Alexander, Athanasius, Basil, Gregory Nazianzen, Chrysostom, Cyril, and others, of whom we may content ourselves with the words of Basil. My Father is greater than I. That is so far forth as Father, since what else does Father signify than that he is cause and origin of him who was begotten by him? and in another place. The Son is second in order to the Father, since he is from him, and dignity, inasmuch as the Father is the origin and cause of his existence. Accordingly, the primitive writers, with an unsuspicious yet reverent explicitness, take for granted the ministrative character of the relation of both Son and Spirit towards the Father, still, of course, speaking of them as included in the divine unity, not as external to it. Thus Irenaeus, clear and undeniable as is his orthodoxy, still declares that the Father is ministered to in all things by his own offspring, and likewise the Son and Holy Ghost, the Word and Wisdom of whom all angels are servants and subjects. 
In like manner, a ministry is commonly ascribed to the Son and Spirit, and a bidding and willing to the Father by Justin, Irenaeus, Clement, Origen, Methodius, altogether in the spirit of the post-Nicene authorities already cited, and without any risk of misleading the reader, as soon as the second and third persons are understood to be internal to the divine mind, conaturalia instrumenta, concurrent at the utmost in no stronger sense than when the human will is said to concur with the reason. Gregory Nazianzen lays down the same doctrine with an explanation in the following sentence. It is plain, he says, that the things of which the Father designs in him the forms, these the word executes, not as a servant, nor unskillfully, but with full knowledge, and a master's power, and to speak more suitably as if he were the Father. Such is the scriptural and Catholic sense of the word son. On the other hand, it is easy to see what was the defect of this image, and the consequent danger in the use of it. First, there was an appearance of materiality, the more suspiciously to be viewed because there were heresies at the time which denied or neglected the spiritual nature of Almighty God. Next, two marked a distinction but seemed to be drawn between the Father and the Son, tending to give a separate individuality to each, and so to introduce a kind of ditheism. And here, too, heresy and philosophy had prepared the way for the introduction of the error. Valentinians and the Manichees are chargeable with both misconceptions, the eclectics with the latter, being eminentists. They seem to have considered the Son to be both individually distinct from the Father and of an inferior nature. Against these errors, we have the following among the protests. Tertullian says, We declare that two are revealed as God in Scripture, two as Lord, but we explain ourselves, lest offense should be taken. They are not called two in respect of their both being God or Lord, but in respect of their being Father and Son. And this, moreover, not from any division of substance, but from mutual relation, since we pronounce the Son to be individual with and inseparable from the Father. Origen also commenting upon the word brightness in the first chapter of the Hebrews says, Holy Scripture endeavors to give to man a refined perception of its teaching by introducing the illustration of breath. It has selected this material image in order to our understanding, even in some degree, how Christ, who is wisdom, issues as though breath from the perfection of God himself. In like manner, from the analogy of material objects, he is called a pure and perfect emanation of the almighty glory. Both these resemblances most clearly show the fellowship of nature between the Son and the Father, for an emanation seems to be of one substance with that body, of which is the emanation or breath. And to guard still more strongly against the misconception of the real drift of the illustration, he cautions his readers against those absurd fictions which give the notion of li certain literal extensions in the divine nature, as if they would disturb it into parts and divide God the Father if they could, whereas to entertain even a light suspicion of this is not only an extreme impiety, but an utter folly also, nay, not even intelligible at all, that an incorporeal nature should be capable of division." To meet more fully this misconception to which the word son gave rise, the ancient fathers availed themselves of the chief appellation given to our Lord in Scripture, the Logos or Sophia, the word, reason, or wisdom of God, and is only by St. John distinctly applied to Christ. But both before his time and by his contemporary apostles, it is used in that ambiguous sense, half literal, half evangelical, which, when it is known to belong to our Lord, guides us to the right interpretation of the metaphor. For instance, when St. Paul declares that the word of God is alive and active, and keener than a two-edged sword, and so piercing as to separate soul and spirit, joints and nerves, and a judge of our thoughts and designs, 
and a witness of every creature, it is scarcely possible to decide whether the revealed law of God be spoken of or the eternal Son. On the whole, it would appear that our Lord is called the Word or Wisdom of God in two respects. First, to denote his essential presence in the Father, in as full a sense as the attribute of wisdom is essential to him. Secondly, his mediatorship, as the interpreter or, or word between God and his creatures. No appellation surely could have been more apostolately bestowed in order to counteract the notions of materiality and of distinct individuality, and of beginning of existence, which the title of the Son was likely to introduce into the Catholic doctrine. Accordingly, after the words lately cited, Origen uses it, or a metaphor like it, for this very purpose. Having mentioned the absurd idea which had prevailed of parts or extensions in the divine nature, he proceeds, Rather, as will proceeds out of the mind, and neither tears the mind, nor is itself separated or divided from it, in some such manner must we conceive that the Father has begotten the Son, who is his image. Elsewhere, he says, if it were not impious or perilous, merely because our intellect is weak, to deprive God, as far as our words go, of his only begotten co-eternal word, vis-a-vis -vis the wisdom in which he rejoiced, we might as well conceive that he has not forever in joy. Hence it was usual to declare that to deny the eternity of our Lord was all one as saying that Almighty God was once without intelligence. For instance, Athenagoras says that the Son is the firstborn of the Father, not as made for being God, for God being mind eternal, had from the beginning reason in himself, being eternally intellectual, but as issuing forth from the chaotic mass, mass as the idea and agent of creation. The same interpretation of the sacred figure is continued after the Nicene Council. Thus Basil says, if Christ be the power of God and the wisdom, and these be in create and co-eternal with God, for he never was without wisdom and power, then Christ is increate and co-eternal with God. But here again the metaphor was necessarily imperfect, and if pursued opened a misconception. Its obvious tendency was to obliterate the notion of the Son's personality, that is, to introduce Sabellianism. Something resembling this was the error of Paulus of Samosota and Marcellus, who, from the fleeting and momentary character of a word spoken, inferred that the divine word was but the temporary manifestation of God's glory in the man Christ. And it was to counteract this tendency, that is, to witness against it. The fathers speak of him as the word in hypostasis, the permanent, real, and living word. The above is a sketch of the primitive doctrine concerning our Lord's divine nature, as contained in two chief appellations which are ascribed to him in Scripture. The opposite ideas they convey may be further denoted respectively by the symbols of God and in God, as though he were so derived from the simple unity of God, as in no respect to be divided or extended from it, to speak metaphorically, but to inhere within that ineffable individuality. Of these two conditions of that doctrine, however, the divinity of Christ and the unity of God, the latter was much more earnestly insisted on in the early times. The divinity of our Lord was, on the whole, too plain a truth to dispute, but in prop proportion as it was known to the heathen, it would seem to, us, to them to involve this consequence, that much as the Christians spoke against polytheism, still, after all, they did admit a polytheism of their own instead of the pagan, hence the anxiety of the apologists, while they assail the heathen creed on this account, to defend their own against a similar charge. Thus Athenagoras, in the passage lately referred to, says, Let no one ridicule the notion that God has a son, for we have not such thoughts about either God the Father or about the Son as your poets, who in their mythologies make the gods no better than men. But the Son of God is the word of the Father as creator, both in idea and in active power, the Father and the Son being one, the Son being in the Father and the Father in the Son, in the unity and power of the Spirit. The Son of God is the mind and word of the Father. 
Accordingly, the divinity of the Son being assumed, the right, early writers are earnest in protecting the doctrine of the unity, protecting it both from the materialism of dividing the Godhead and the primitiveness of separating the Son and Spirit from the Father. And to this purpose they made both the of God and the in God subservient in a manner which shall now be shown. First, the in God. It is the clear declaration of Scripture, which we must receive without questioning, that the Son and Spirit are in the one God, and he in them. There is that remarkable text in the first chapter of St. John, which says that the Son is in the bosom of the Father. In another place it is said that the Son is in the Father, and the Father in the Son. See John chapter 14, verse 11. And elsewhere the Spirit of God is compared to the Spirit of man which is in him. See 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11. This, in the language of theology, the doctrine of the co-inherence, which was used from the earliest times on the authority of Scripture as a safeguard and witness of the divine unity. Passage from Athenagoras to this purpose has just been cited. Clement has the following doxology at the end of his Christian instructor. To the one only Father and Son, Son and Father, Son our guide and teacher, with the Holy Spirit also, to the one in all things, in whom are all things, etc. To him is the glory, etc. And Gregory of Neocesaria, if the words form part of his creed, in the, in the Trinity there is nothing created, nothing subservient, nothing of foreign nature, as if absent from it once, and afterwards added. The Son never failed the Father, nor the Spirit the Son, but the Trinity remains evermore unchangeable, unalterable. These authorities belong to the early Alexandrian school. The Antinicene school of Rome is still more explicit. Dionysius of Rome says, we must never distribute into three divinities the awful and divine unity, nor diminish the dignity and transcendent majesty of our Lord by the name of creature. But we must believe in God the Father Almighty, and in Christ Jesus his Son, and in the Holy Spirit, and believe that the Word is united with the God of the universe. For he says, I and the Father are one, and I am in the Father, and the Father in me. For thus the divine trinity and the holy preaching of the monarchia will be preserved. This doctrine of the coherence as protecting the unity without entrenching on the perfections of the Son and Spirit may even be called the characteristic of Catholic Trinitarianism, as opposed to all counterfeits, whether philosophical, that of Arius, or of the East. One post-Nicene statement of it shall be added. If anyone truly receives the Son, says Basil, he will find that he brings with him on one hand his Father, on the other the Holy Spirit. For neither can he from the Father be severed, who is of and ever in the Father, nor again from his own spirit disunited, who in it operates all things. For we must not conceive separation or division in any way, as if either the Son could be supposed without the Father, or the Spirit disunited from the Son. But there is discovered between them some ineffable and incomprehensible, both communion and distinction. Secondly, as in as the in God led the fathers to the doctrine of coherence, so did the God of God lead them to the doctrine of monarchia still with the one object of guarding against any resemblance to polytheism in their creed. Even the outsider had shown a disposition, designedly or from a spontaneous feeling, to trace all their deities up to one principle or arche, as is evident by their theogonies. Much more did it become that our religion, which prominently put forth the unity of God, jealously to guard its language, lest it should seem to admit the existence of a variety of original principles. It is said to have been the doctrine of the Marcionists and Manichaeans, that there were three unconnected independent beings in the divine nature. Scripture and the Church avoid the appearance of tritheism by tracing back, if we may say so, the infinite perfections 
of the Son and Spirit to him whose Son and Spirit they are. They are, so to express it, but the new manifestation and repetition of the Father, there being no room for enumeration or comparison between them, nor any resting place for, contempt, for the contemplative mind, till they are referred to him in whom they center. On the other hand, in naming the Father, we imply the Son and Spirit, whether they be named or not. Without this key, the language of Scripture is perplexed in the extreme. Hence it is that the Father is called the only God, at a time when our Lord's name is also mentioned. See John chapter 18, verse 3, First Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses six and se 16 and 17. As if the Son was but the reiteration of his person, who is self-existent, and therefore not to be contrasted with him in the way of number. The creed, called the Apostles, follows this mode of stating this doctrine. The title of God standing in the opening against the Father's name, while the Son and Spirit are introduced as distinct forms or modes, so to say, of and in the one eternal being. The Nicene Creed, commonly so called, directed as it is against the impugners both of the Son's and of the Spirit's divinity, nevertheless observes the same rule, even a stricter form, beginning with a confession of the one God. Whether or not this mode of speaking was designed in Scripture to guard the doctrine of the unity from all ver verbal infringement, and there seems evidence that it was so, as in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, it certainly was used for this purpose in the primitive church. Thus, Tertullian says that it is a mistake to suppose that the number and arrangement of the Trinity is a division of its unity, inasmuch as the unity drawing out the Trinity from itself is not destroyed by it, but is subserved. Novation, in like manner, says, God originating from God, so as to be the second person, yet not interfering with the Father's right to be called the one God. For had he not a birth, then indeed, when compared with him who had no birth, he would seem from the appearance of equality in both to make two who were without birth, and therefore two gods. Accordingly, it is impossible to worship one of the divine persons without worshiping the others also. In praying to the Father, we only arrive at his mysterious presence through his Son and Spirit, and in praying to the Son and Spirit, we are necessarily carried on beyond them to the source of Godhead from which they are derived. We see this in the very form of many of the received addresses to the Blessed Trinity, in which without intended reference to the mediatorial scheme, the Son and Spirit seem, even in the view of the divine unity, to take a place in our thoughts between the Father and his creatures, as in the ordinary doxologies, to the Father through the Son and by the Spirit, or to the Father and Son in the unity of the Holy Ghost. This gives us an insight into the force of expressions common with the primitive fathers, but bearing, in the eyes of inconsiderate observers, a refined and curious character. They call the Son, God of God, Light of Light, etc., much more frequently than simply God, in order to anticipate in the very form of words the charge or the risk of ditheism. Hence also the illustrations of the sun and his rays were in such repute vis-a-vis -vis as containing not only a description, but also a defense of the Catholic doctrine. Thus Hippolytus says, when I say that the sun is distinct from the Father, I do not speak of two gods, but as it were, light of light and the stream from the fountain and a ray from the sun. It was the same reason which led the fathers to insist upon the doctrine of the divine generation. I hope you found that helpful. I will admit that that was a much denser read than anything I've provided for a while on this channel. Um, I hope you uh, took advantage, as I said at the beginning, of the gear icon to slow the speed down a little bit, because that was about as slow as I can go. But, well, you know, John Henry Cardinal Newman was considered one of the great minds of his time. And uh, as you can see why he, his target audience here was probably his peers or probably uh, seminarians, if I had to guess from the reading of this. 
Anyway, again, I hope you found that helpful. Start turning your mind uh, towards the concept of Advent. I know we're still in late October, but Advent starts in about a month. And I'll have something soon, I hope, early November, I think, on how to have a good Advent, how to have a traditional Catholic Advent. But until then, please pray for the Church. I'm Anthony Stein. Ave Maria.